Welcome to Washington Today on C-SPAN Radio for Wednesday, March 1st, 2023. President Joe Biden presents his nominee for Labor Secretary, Julie Su, who is the current Deputy Labor Secretary. She grew up in Wisconsin, the daughter of immigrants, President Biden calling her the American dream. Coming up, we'll hear from the president and the nominee and a Republican who opposes her and talk about the nomination with a White House reporter from The Hill. President nominee to head up the Federal Aviation Administration, Philip Washington, defending his qualifications today to skeptical Republicans at a Senate Commerce, Science and Transportation Committee confirmation hearing. President Biden expected to veto the first bill of his presidency after the Senate joins the House in passing a bill that would block a Labor Department regulation, making it easier for retirement plan managers to consider environmental, social and governance issues known as ESG when making investment decisions. House Republican Speaker Kevin McCarthy introducing what the Republicans call a parent's bill of rights, designed, they say, to give parents a greater say in the operations of their children's schools. House Democratic Leader Hakeem Jeffries sending a letter to Fox News leadership, along with the Senate Democratic Leader Chuck Schumer. They're calling on those executives to tell their on-air hosts to renounce the lie that Donald Trump won the 2020 presidential election. Also coming up, Attorney General Merrick Garland testifying before the Senate Judiciary Committee. First time he's answering questions from Congress in over a year. Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot becomes the first Chicago mayor in decades to lose a re-election attempt. And the National Park Service with a prediction for cherry blossom peak bloom. A sure sign that spring is fast approaching in Washington, D.C. And we start at the White House, where President Joe Biden introduced his nominee for Labor Secretary Julie Su, currently Deputy Secretary. CNN reports the president touted the overwhelming support she enjoys among lawmakers and other Democratic supporters. And he joked that if he didn't pick Julie Su, who would be the first Asian-American cabinet secretary of his administration, if confirmed, he'd be run out of town. Also, President Biden highlighted Julie Su's understanding of workers' rights and her background as a civil rights lawyer. Here's President Biden. She's increased the minimum wage, cracked down on wage theft, protected protected trafficked workers, established and enforced workplace safety standards, and so much more. The Department of Labor, she's led the effort to ensure jobs of high-growth industries like semiconductor manufacturing, broadband, healthcare, and so much more, making sure they're good-paying jobs, high-quality jobs, and union jobs. Union jobs. When I spoke at the Business Roundtable, I wanted to know why I was so pro-union. I said, to save you money. (laughs) Most Americans out there think you want to be an electrician or you want to be a laborer, you want to be a carpenter, you show up and you get a job. Well, you spend four to five years as an apprentice. It's like going back to college with a little added degree. They're the best workers in the world. And you might as well get the job done right the first time and long-term save you a lot of money. And by the way, I didn't get much blowback when I made that comment. And like, and like, and like it uh, is for, for Marty, it's personal for Julie. Born in Wisconsin, she's the daughter of Chinese immigrants. A mom uh, of a union worker, her mom was a union worker, and her dad was a small business owner. She went to law school, served the people of California. Julie is the American dream. She is what the American dream is about. More importantly, I think even more importantly, she's committed to making sure that dream is in the reach of every American. Every American. That's what she's all about. She's going to make sure it happens as the fourth Asian-American woman in my cabinet. But, you know, I know Julia, most important title is mom, and she has two accomplished, wonderful daughters. Stand up, girls, will you? President Biden at the White House with his Labor Secretary nominee, Julie Sue. Also there was the outgoing Labor Secretary, Marty Walsh, who is leaving this month to become head of the National Hockey League Players Union. Julie Sue today speaking of the path she and her family have traveled to get to this point. 60 years ago, my mom came to the United States on a cargo ship because she couldn't afford a passenger ticket. 
Recently, she got a call from the President of the United States telling her that her daughter was gonna be nominated to be U.S. Labor Secretary. <laughs> So I believe in the transformative power of America, and I know the transformative power of a good job. I know because it was the kind of job that my mom got that had predictable hours, paid sick leave, health benefits, a secure income, and a pension when she retired. A union job that gave my parents a path to the middle class and gave our family the kind of breathing room that the president talks about. We have never had a president who has made workers, worker well-being, and worker power so central to his vision of a strong nation and a strong economy. Labor Secretary and nominee Julie Sue at the White House today with President Biden. She is a former secretary of the California Labor and Workforce Development Agency, and seven Republican members of Congress from California had signed a letter to the president urging him not to nominate Julie Sue, saying that she, in California, oversaw one of the largest cases of unemployment insurance fraud during the COVID-19 pandemic and put in place one of the most destructive labor policies in decades. One of those members of Congress is Kevin Kiley, interviewed today on Newsmax TV. President Biden uh, appointed someone who is uh, literally the worst possible pick uh, for this position. If he just chosen a name at random from the phone book, uh, he would have done a lot better. Uh, Julie Sue has three gigantic strikes against her, each of which is on its own disqualifying. Uh, number one, after Gavin Newsom shut the state down and uh, put uh, millions of people out of work, her unemployment office failed to deliver people the unemployment checks they were owed, making it so many people couldn't put food on the table for weeks uh, or for months. Number two, as this was happening, as hardworking Californians couldn't get their unemployment checks, checks were flying out the door to hardened criminals who perpetrated a $32 billion fraud scheme uh, because she failed to take basic fraud prevention measures. And number three, she was the architect of one of the worst labor laws in United States history, AB5, which has cost countless Californians their jobs by banning uh, independent work. Uh, and so, you know, she was Gavin Newsom's labor secretary. The big picture here right. is Gavin Newsom is saying again and again, California is a model for the nation. And President Biden seems to be believing him with this pick. Congressman Kevin Kiley, Republican from California, interviewed by Newsmax. Alex Gangitano, White House correspondent for The Hill, has been covering the president's nomination of Julie Sue for labor secretary. Joining us now by phone. Thank you. What are the prospects for confirmation in the Senate? Yeah, it's a great question. So today there was this big event at the White House announcing Sue and, and uh, with the president and her up on stage. Uh, but it is going to be a kind of a tough road for her, definitely an uphill battle. You know, she faces a 51 to 49 Democratic-led Senate, but uh, Senator John Fetterman is currently uh, receiving treatment uh, for his depression. And so he'll be out for the next few weeks. So that does bring them down one vote. And something to keep in mind is Sue was uh, the deputy secretary before this, which was a Senate confirmed position. And she won uh, uh, her spot uh, within the Senate in a vote along party lines. So I think it'll be another party line vote. I think they need that fireman vote. And then they can't afford to have another Democrat uh, sway. So I think it'll take some lobbying and they uh, to get her confirmed. So we'll see how, how tough senators are on her during her confirmation process. There were a few other names being talked about in the media to be possible nominees for labor secretary. President Biden today joked that if he didn't pick Julie Sue, he'd be run out of town. What was that about? Yeah, so Sue had a lot of supporters in Congress. And I think what we heard was, you know, other names were floated around, some being uh, heads of unions. One was former Congressman Sean Patrick Maloney of New York, who lost his election this cycle. And it was actually former Speaker Pelosi who was throwing his name around for a cabinet role. And it kind of sounded like it was the labor secretary role was the first one that popped up. Uh, so she threw his name out for that, but kind of just launched him in the administration. I heard a lot of backlash about him. So I think the president was 
referring to that um, about him being the labor secretary. But I think in terms of Julie Sue, this is actually the first opportunity for the president to have an Asian American cabinet secretary. And a lot of people have taken notice that he doesn't have one. He has cabinet level officials who are um, Asian Americans, of course, including uh, uh, Vice President Harris. But uh, he is the first president in 20 years to not have a Asian American secretary um, in his cabinet. And that's huge. And the uh, congressional, um, the Asian American caucus in, in Congress uh, quickly endorsed her and said she has to be given the slot. So I think there would have been a lot of disappointment if he didn't go ahead and nominate her. And she also, you know, proved, uh, you know, her her work throughout the last two years as the deputy secretary. So it all made a lot of sense. And I think he knew that he'd get a lot of backlash if if he didn't name her. We're talking with reporter Alex Gagetano from The Hill. Both President Biden and Julie Sue today using the phrase finish the job. That was the mantra the president mm-hmm. used in the State of the Union address. What does finish the job mean in the context of the agenda of the Labor Department? Yeah, it's an interesting uh, question in terms of the Labor Department. As you mentioned, we've heard him say, I want to finish the job, giving nods towards his 2024 bid that he hasn't officially announced yet. Julie Sue gave a nod towards that again today, as you mentioned. But getting a pro-union agenda through Congress will be nearly impossible with the Republican-led House. Uh, The president, of course, is an optimist, so he might have been referring to that. Uh, He was not able to get the PRO Act passed, which is a huge, uh, that's a huge, uh, something that the unions really want to see, minimum wage increase. These are all things that a Republican-led House is not going to, you know, get through or, or give any attention to. Um, and so it does come down to having a good labor secretary can help with things from a regulation standpoint, you know, even something like a minimum wage or strengthening worker pers- uh, protections. Uh, I think a lot of that will have to be through regulations. Um, and the president knows that and, and having that strong voice like, like Julie Sue in place can help him accomplish that, of course, without getting Congress involved. Another thing that he did mention was that Marty Walsh, the former labor secretary, was so instrumental during the uh, rail safety negotiations. That was back when we heard about this strike that had the uh, potential to cripple the U.S. supply chain um, between railroad operators and union workers. And the Biden administration had to step in and uh, help with the negotiations and settle that. And Julie Sue had a had a strong place in that. So as the president is so focused on the economy, so focused on the supply chain and manufacturing, I think he wants to get more work out of his um, administration uh, towards, you know, just keeping the economy pushing along and keeping things, um, you know, on an upwards trajectory. I think that's a huge priority for him. And a final question. When Julie Sue was nominated and then confirmed for deputy secretary, presume that she went through a a vetting process, both at the White House and at the Senate committee level. So are there any issues that came up that besides policy issues that may be a factor in this nomination? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, the um, Republican criticism about her, um, a lot of which was about her work uh, towards, uh, you know, increasing minimum wage efforts in California when she was uh, the head of the Labor Department there. And, and of course, California is thought of as a very liberal state um, by a lot of conservatives. And uh, her work towards worker protection there was seemed to be uh, considered kind of extreme, perhaps, um, towards that. I think she also, you know, was mentioned um just in the lens of this Biden administration and you know so much of the republican criticism towards labor um rules and and regulations that the Biden administration wants to impose have just been that they're too extreme, too liberal and you know not um supporting the capitalist kind of mindset and and could put businesses in harm's way. So I think all of that is going to come up 
Um, again, I mean, she is kind of an extension of Marty Walsh and, and how supportive he was and is towards unions. So I think we'll see a lot of kind of Republican criticism that it's just too much um, in terms of of uh, something like a minimum wage, you know, and, and a huge factor in all of this is, though, that a lot of union workers are voting Republican. A lot of them voted for President Trump. And so the Republicans kind of have to vote a, to toe a, a fine line between, you know, thinking uh, we can't do things that are going to cripple the economy and give too much power. But uh, we also have to, you know, make sure to keep union workers happy and voting uh, Republican. So a lot of factors going into 2020 right now, of course. Alex Gangitano, White House correspondent for The Hill. Her stories at thehill.com and on Twitter at Alex Gangitano. Thank you very much. Thank you. President Biden's nominee to lead the Federal Aviation Administration, Philip Washington, testified today before the Senate Commerce, Science and Transportation Committee more than seven months after he was nominated. Philip Washington is a 24-year Army veteran and former top transit official in Los Angeles and Denver, but has not been a commercial airline pilot like some recent FAA administrators. He talked about this in his opening statement, referencing his time as chief executive of the Denver International Airport. My experience as CEO of the third busiest airport in the world, Denver International Airport, with 35,000 workers, translates well to the FAA. During the aviation challenges of the last several months, travelers through my airport have not asked me how much direct aviation experience I had. Instead, they asked me where was their luggage um, and why their flight was delayed or canceled and how their families would survive uh, in my airport during rigid nights. We engaged with our partners. We worked as a team. We took care of travelers at my airport. The FAA is at a crossroads, an agency that must protect the safest era of aviation, modernize this technology, lift employee morale, while staffing up and maintaining its global leadership in aviation. Yes, we need to reinforce that we are the regulator for aircraft manufacturers, airlines, and new entrants to the national airspace. Yes, we need to stress continuously safety as second nature for all FAA employees. However, to accomplish all of these things, we need permanent leadership at the top of the FAA to address the challenges that we have seen in the last several years. If confirmed, I will draw on a career spanning almost 45 years to be that leader. FAA Administrator nominee Philip Washington, part of his opening statement, his confirmation hearing today before the Senate Commerce, Science and Transportation Committee. The committee chair, Maria Cantwell, Democrat from Washington State, echoing his comments, saying the U.S. Army taught Mr. Washington how to get things done and get things done right. But Republicans on the committee saying that Philip Washington is not qualified to be the administrator, including Senator Ted Budd, Republican from North Carolina. With recent issues under the Biden administration, from the flight disruptions over Christmas, uh, the NOTAM or the notice to air missions ground stop and the recent near miss, uh, near miss incidents in New York, Texas, and just yesterday in Boston. My colleagues and I were concerned about the many uh, or several parts of your background and your lack of aviation experience. Now, there's many new regulations that the FAA has issued or is in process of developing. Um, here's, for in, here's one, for instance. The FAA is spending billions of dollars on its next-gen program, as you're aware, to modernize the national airspace system. A key part of this update is moving towards GPS navigation for pilots and ATC. Now, as part of this transition, the FAA recently required airplanes to be equipped with an ADSB transponder. So, Mr. Washington, can you quickly tell me uh, what airspace requires an ADSB transponder? Quickly, please. Thank you for the question, Senator. Uh, not sure I can answer that question right now. That's, that's okay. We'll just keep going. So um, that's a that's a pretty important part. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, another question. Uh, you've said that your national security background, and again, I appreciate your military experience there, but you say that's prepared you for this role. It's okay. The FAA has classified airspace to meet the needs of airports, air traffic, and also national security. The FAA has also designated special use airspace over DOD bases critical to national security. So what are the six types of special use airspace 
that protect this national security that appear on FAA charts? Quickly, please. Uh, sorry, Senator, I cannot answer that question. Okay, we'll, we'll, just, we'll just keep going, so thank you. Sure. Uh, since um, World War II, the FAA has required pilots to have a valid medical certificate. I've got one. Um, in recent years, the FAA has relaxed these standards through the introduction of the Sport Pilot Certificate and also Basic Med. It's been a great success. Uh, more than 70,000 pilots in the last six years have used Basic Med to maintain their flying privileges. So what are the, what are the limit? It comes with some limitations. So what are the operational limitations of a pilot flying under Basic Med? Well, thank you for the question, Senator. I'm not a pilot, so... Uh, but I, obviously you'd ever see the F Federal Aviation Administration. So um, any, any idea what those uh, restrictions are under Basic Med, quickly? Uh, well, some of the restrictions I think would be high blood pressure. Uh, some of them would be... It's more like how many passengers per airplane, oh, how many pounds okay. in different categories, and uh, what el what uh, altitude uh, you can fly under. So, and uh, and then uh, amount of knots. It's under 250 knots. So, okay. it's not having have anything to do with blood pressure. Senator Ted Budd, Republican from North Carolina, questioning Philip Washington, nominated to be Federal Aviation Administration Administrator at today's Senate confirmation hearing. The senator went on for a few more minutes like that, asking the questions and then concluding with the statement, the FAA can't afford to be led by someone who needs on-the-job training, and for that reason, I'm going to be opposing your nomination. Ranking Republican on the committee, Ted Cruz from Texas, also raising with the nominee questions about any ties he may have to an ongoing criminal investigation at his time when, his, when he was with the Los Angeles Metropolitan Transportation Authority case involves possible favoritism and how the MTA awarded contracts. Philip Washington's denying all wrongdoing today and saying that matter does not pertain to him. C-SPAN cameras covered today's hearing. You can find the full video at our website, cspan.org. President Biden expected to exercise the first veto of his presidency. This after the Senate passed a bill that would block a regulation making it easier for retirement plan managers to consider environmental, social, and corporate, corporate governance or ESG issues when making investment decisions. The House passed the bill yesterday. Senate vote today was 50 to 46. Two Democrats joining Republicans in voting yes. Joe Manchin of West Virginia, John Tester from Montana. Before the vote, here is Senator Mike Braun, Republican. This rule now allows the criterion of using those ESG goals, which would be simplified, being able to push a certain ideology, a certain point of view into how retirement earnings are invested. You got to remember, this is a fiduciary thing. Most people, when they give money to their financial advisor, their broker, you would think, they would think that it's going to get the best return. Bloomberg tracked it. If you would actually invest according to ideology over the last few years, it would have been the difference between an 8.9% return and a 6.3% return. Imagine trying to explain that in a way where someone trusted that you would be doing the best thing with their hard-earned money to get the best financial return. Senator Mike Braun on the Senate floor. Opposing this bill, again, the bill prevents the regulation from taking effect, and the regulation does make it easier to consider ESG issues and retirement plan investment decisions. Senator Elizabeth Warren, Democrat from Massachusetts. Republicans' latest front in their wholly made-up culture war is an attack on quote-unquote woke capitalism. And American retirees are apparently their targets. In particular, Republicans have set their sights on retirees who choose to invest their money with environmental, social, and governance, ESG, factors in mind. Now, investors have actually been doing this for decades. The Department of Labor has repeatedly said that under the Employment Retiree, Retirement Income Security Act of 1974, known as ERISA, retirement plan managers may consider all, all 
relevant economic factors when making investment decisions if it's in the best interests of the plan's participants. That includes ESG factors like how a company treats its workers or whether the company is sufficiently protected from climate risks and whether the company respects human rights. And it turns out investors really want to know these things. You don't need to be a financial wizard to realize that whether a company invests in its workers or is vulnerable to climate risks might be relevant to the company's long-term prospects and the potential returns on your investment. But the Trump administration put blinders on investors when, in 2020, it finalized a rule lim limiting that and made it harder for retirees to invest with ESG considerations in mind. Senator Elizabeth Warren on the Senate floor before the vote to, on the bill that would block that rule. The bill did pass, again, 50 to 46, the vote in the Senate, two Democrats joining the Republicans, Joe Manchin of West Virginia, Don John Tester from Montana. The House passed this bill yesterday, and so it will head to President Biden's desk, and the White House says he will veto it. So then it would head back to Congress, and it would need a two-thirds vote in the House and Senate to override that presidential veto, and the votes that have taken place the past two days are not at that two-thirds level. One more item in the Senate. Vice President Kamala Harris, as president of the Senate, Today, breaking a tie to confirm Margaret Guzman to be U.S. District Court Judge for Massachusetts, and in doing so, tied John Adams for second most tie-breaking votes in the Senate by a vice president in U.S. history, with 29, just two short of the record 31, held by John Calhoun. Are there any senators in the chamber who wish to vote or change a vote? If not, on this vote, the yeas are 48 and the nays are 48. The Senate being equally divided, the Vice President votes in the affirmative and the nomination is confirmed. Under the previous order, the motion to reconsider is considered made and laid upon the table and the President will be immediately notified of the Senate's action. Vice President Kamala Harris today presiding over the Senate and making history. Second most tie-breaking vote by a Vice President in U.S. history, just too short of the record. U.S. House today passing a bill to require the White House publish the effects on inflation of all major presidential executive orders, those with an estimated economic effect of at least $1 billion before the orders take effect. Vote in the House was 272 to 148, mostly party line. 59 Democrats joining Republicans in voting yes. There were four Republicans joining most of the Democrats in voting no. Here's debate on the bill. It ran two days. Today, there were a few amendments offered, including this one from Congressman Scott Perry, Republican of Pennsylvania. You'll hear opposition from Jamie Raskin, Democrat from Maryland. As we all should know by now, this bill requires the president to consider for any major executive order the impact of the executive order on inflation. I mean, the president is the president of the United States, and the well-being of every citizen should be of the president's concern, and I believe it is. When the American people have been suffering this inflation for years, it makes sense to require the president, no matter which party, to at least consider, to at least consider the impact of his actions on the American people. Because they don't have any choice in the matter till the next election. This amendment requires for executive orders that are found to have an impact on the consumer price index. We got to have some measure, right? And most people recognize the consumer price index, which is a detailed description of that impact so that we can all be on the same page, so that we can all reference the same data point. Folks, this is common sense and it's reasonable. The way this bill is currently written, I support the bill. The statement prepared by the president must simply include whether it has an impact on inflation. And maybe the impact is to lower inflation. That would be awesome. I think we're going to have to wait a couple years until we get a president that actually does that. But okay, so be it. We'll accept that. Even this legislation under a new president that lowers the cost of inflation by executive order. But the current bill doesn't talk about the extent of the impact, which is what this amendment seeks to remedy. This amendment requires that statement to provide actual information to the extent of the impact uh, 
regarding the consumer price index. And with that, uh, Mr. Chairman, I urge adoption of this amendment and I reserve the balance. Gentleman reserves. For what purpose does the gentleman from uh, Maryland seek? Claiming time in opposition, Mr. Chairman. You're recognized. Thank you kindly. Um, I, I'm afraid I, I remain unilluminated as to what that amendment will do. Um, apparently, the, the purpose is to require a more detailed or technical description of the projected impact when an assessment required by the bill uh, finds that there will be some inflationary uh, effect. Again, this sounds like it's simply adding more bureaucracy, more paperwork with no return on investment for the taxpayer dollars that it would obviously take to conduct such an analysis. I mean, here we've gone for more than two centuries uh, with apparently no economist uh, arguing that what we really need to stop inflation is more reporting in the uh, process of issuance of executive orders by presidents of the United States. Uh, and suddenly, uh, somebody had a great epiphany over there without even a legislative hearing that what was really needed was just for the President of the United States to append an inflationary statement uh, to executive orders uh, at the rate of a billion dollars, perhaps to be amended to a million dollars, or who knows, it's 50 million or 100 million, but it doesn't make any difference because there's no data behind any of it, there's no analysis behind any of it. You may as well, may as well spin a wheel and pick a number uh, at which uh, a uh, report is going to be uh, compelled by the majority here for the so-called RAIN Enact, which stands for the Reduce Exacerbated Inflation Negatively Impacting the Nation Act, uh, which um, you know could go by uh, other titles, including the uh, Running on Empty Index, No New Ideas, None, act, uh, since basically they're scraping the bottom to try to figure out something to say about inflation, because the administration is actually bringing inflation down. Congressman Jamie Raskin, Democrat from Maryland, and before that, Congressman Scott Perry, Republican from Pennsylvania. Scott Perry offering this amendment. It did pass. The amendment did by voice vote. And then again, the underlying bill with the other amendments passed. 272 to 148. The bill now heads to the Senate. On Wall Street today, the Dow up five, Nasdaq down 76, S&P down 18. From NBC News, Eli Lilly will cap the out-of-pocket cost of its insulin at $35 a month. The drug maker said Wednesday the move experts say could prompt other insulin makers in the U.S. to follow suit. The change, which Eli Lilly said takes effect immediately, puts the drug maker in line with the provision in the Inflation Reduction Act, which in January imposed a $35 monthly cap on the out-of-pocket cost of insulin for seniors enrolled in Medicare. More on this from White House Press Secretary Corrine Jean-Pierre. Insulin costs less than $10 to make, but Americans are sometimes forced to pay over $300 for, for it as well. As the president said this morning, it's flat wrong. That's why the president fought tooth and nail to pass the Inflation Reduction Act, which caps the price of insulin for Americans on Medicare. This was a critical action to lower health care costs for American people, but the president has been clear that the insulin cap should apply to all Americans, and that, that was something that we saw congressional Republicans blocked at that time. In, this, in his State of the Union address, he also called on pharma companies to continue this progress and bring prices down for everyone on their own. Today, Eli Lilly, the largest manufacturer of insulin in the United States, heeded that call and announced that they are lowering their prices, capping what patients pay out of the pocket, uh, out of pocket for drug makers' insulin products at $30, at $35. This is great news and important progress toward lowering costs for all Americans. Unfortunately, congressional Republicans are making uh, may, are, are among the few left that believe insulin costs should be sky high. In fact, they are fighting to repeal the Inflation Reduction Act, which would increase health care costs for American people and increase the deficit as well. The White House Press Secretary, Corrine Jean-Pierre, part of her opening statement at her White House briefing with reporters, the American Diabetes Association says about 8.4 million people in the U.S. with diabetes rely on insulin. Three out of 10 people with diabetes rely on insulin. Use a product from Eli Lilly. And that company and two others, Novo Nordisk and Sanofi, dominate the insulin market. Washington Today continues in a moment. 
Welcome back to Washington Today, which you can get as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts and on the free C-SPAN Now mobile app. A few more headlines. U.S. intelligence community has determined it was unlikely that a foreign adversary is responsible for a series of anomalous health incidents that hit intelligence and diplomatic staff around the world. It was originally called Havana Syndrome after government employees first reported experiencing mysterious neurological problems in Havana in 2016. And Twitter has reversed the suspension of Senator Mike Lee's personal account. He's a Republican from Utah. It came hours after the account was locked, and Senator Lee saying he does not know why. He told the Hill.com, I checked my email and checked my direct mentioning function on the Twitter app, and I haven't received anything weird. House Republicans today introducing what they are calling a signature piece of House Republicans' commitment to America, part of their agenda pledge. It's named the Parents' Bill of Rights, and it would, quote, empower parents and ensure that they are able to be involved in their kids' education. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy elaborating at a House Republican forum on Capitol Hill. Today we're making a little history. First of all, some people will say it's a little history for the standpoint that uh, you've got elected officials keeping their word. Uh, we made a commitment to America that we would bring a milestone bill, the Parents' Bill of Rights. And that's what today is all about. It's about every parent, every mom and dad, but most importantly, about the students in America today. You know, it's, pretty, um, it's a pretty straightforward bill. We firmly believe that this bill's foundation is kind of on four, five pillars. And in today, when you introduce a bill, it always is given a number. And in the majority, you're able to reserve the first through 10. This is HR 5 for a very important reason. When you turn about five is when you start going to kindergarten, right? You start your education. But this bill with Julia Lutlow kind of sits on five main pillars. The right to know what's being taught in the school and for you to be able to see uh, the reading materials, right? The right to be heard. So many times across this nation we found that parents were attacked, called terrorists, if they simply wanted to go to a school board meeting to be heard about what's going on. The right to ski the school budgets and how they spend their money. The right to protect your child's privacy. And the right to be updated on any violent activity at the school. We think these are pretty basic things that everybody and every parent should have a right to. Because it doesn't matter if you're from Louisiana, Florida, Indiana, New York, or North Carolina, or even California. It doesn't matter the color of your skin, your wealth. When you have a child, that is the most important thing in your life. You'll give your life for that child. And one thing we know in this country is education is the great equalizer. And we want the parents to be empowered. And that's what we're doing today. That you have a say in your kids' education, not government, and not telling you what to do. So that's why I believe it's a milestone. That's why I'm excited about what's happening today. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, Republican from California in Washington, D.C., a forum with other House Republicans and some parents for the introduction of this bill they have named the Parents' Bill of Rights. A story from ABC News, the Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer and House Democratic Leader Akeem Jeffries are calling on Rupert Murdoch, chairman of the media group that owns Fox News, to rein in his conservative media personalities who he admitted knowingly promoted former President Donald Trump's false election conspiracies, as well as have them, quote, admit on the air that they were wrong to engage in such negligent behavior. The leadership of your company was aware of the dangers of broadcasting these outlandish claims. The two top congressional Democrats wrote in a letter to Rupert Murdoch and other Fox executives Wednesday. By your own account, Donald Trump's election lies were damaging and really crazy stuff. Despite that shocking admission, Fox News hosts have continued to peddle election denialism to the American people. That reporting from ABC News. The House Minority Leader, Hakeem Jeffries, asked about this letter at his weekly news conference. You and the leader um, Schumer sent a letter to Fox News earlier today um, saying that you'd like to see the primetime host publicly recant the big lie. Um, 
were that not to happen, what, is, what are you planning to instruct your members in both chambers or ask them to do with regard to Fox News? Are you either going to boycott? Is there going to be some sort of, what's your recourse if this doesn't happen? Well, the letter speaks for itself and it relates specifically to the issue of the big lie, which apparently was well understood at the highest levels of Fox News. And I think Lita Schumer and myself simply expressed the position that since everyone seems to clearly understand that Joe Biden won the 2020 presidential election, that Donald Trump perpetrated a big lie to the American people that has had dangerous consequences, including a rise in political violence and an insurrection as part of an effort to halt the peaceful transfer of power, that perhaps it's time for America to be able to move past that big lie. And an important step would be those who know it was a big lie to publicly repudiate it. And if they don't? We'll cross that bridge when we get to it. The House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries, Democrat from New York, with reporters today in Washington. He and other House Democrats are starting today their issues retreat in Baltimore's Inner Harbor, a hotel there, discussing policy policy and strategy. They'll be hearing from President Biden tonight and Vice President Kamala Harris and several Biden administration officials over the next two days. President Biden will also be speaking to Senate Democrats on Thursday at their regular lunch meeting. Attorney General Merrick Garland testifying before Congress today for the first time in over a year. Bloomberg News writes, Attorney General Garland told Republican Senator Ted Cruz he vigorously disagrees with his characterization that the Justice Department and the Federal Bureau of Investigation have been politicized under his watch. Merrick Garland defended the Justice Department under his leadership as Republican senators led by Senator Cruz accused it of using heavy-handed tactics to target conservative Catholics, protesters at abortion facilities, and parents angry at school boards. C-SPAN covered this Senate Judiciary Committee hearing. You can find the video at cspan.org. Here is Senator Cruz with questions about not prosecuting abortion rights protesters outside the homes of Supreme Court justices leading up to and after the court's Dobbs decision that overturned the Roe v. Wade decision that legalized abortion nationwide. When rioters descended at the homes of six Supreme Court justices, night after night after night, you did nothing. The department did nothing. When extremist groups like Ruth Senas and Jane's Revenge openly organized campaigns of harassment at the homes of justices, you sat on your hands. When these same groups posted online information about where the justices worship or their home addresses or where their kids went to school, you again sat on your hands and did nothing. Your failure to act to protect the safety of the justices and their families was an obvious product of political bias. You agree with Roe versus Wade. You disagree with the Dobbs decision. And the Department of Justice under this president was perfectly happy to refuse to enforce the law and allow threats of violence. And as you know, those threats finally materialized with Nicholas Roski, a 26-year-old man from California who traveled across the country, was arrested outside the home of Justice Kavanaugh, armed with a handgun, a knife, and burglary tools. And he said he came there to kill Justice Kavanaugh because he was enraged by the leaked opinion. Now, of course, you're prosecuting that individual for attempted murder. But did you bring even a single case to enforce this law or did the Department of Justice decide this law doesn't apply if it's harassing justices for an opinion we don't like? When the Dobbs uh, draft was leaked, I did something no attorney general in the history of the department had ever done before. For the first time in history, I ordered United States Marshals 24-7 to defend every uh, residents of every justice. Well, Garland is a judge. You're familiar with asking counsel I'm to answer an- a question. I am answering. Has the Department of Justice enforced this statute? Have you brought a single case against any of these protesters threatening the judge, 
justices under 18 U.S.C. Section 1507. Have you brought even one? Senator, you asked me whether I sat on my hands, and quite of the opposite. I sent okay, 70 me, United States Marshals. Let me try again. And let Have me, you, has the Department of Justice brought even a single case under this statute? It's a yes-no question. It's not a give a speech on the other things you did. The job of the United States Marshals is to defend the lives so of the- So the answer is no. Is to defend the lives of the justices, and that's their number one priority. They have- Why full are you unwilling to say no? The answer's no. You know it's no. I know it's no. Everyone in this, in this hearing room knows it's no. You're not willing to answer a question. Have you brought a case under this statute, yes or no? As far as I know, we haven't, and what we have done is defended the lives of the justices with so over how do 70 you decide, U.S. Marshals. How do you decide which criminal statutes the, the DOJ enforces and which one it doesn't? The United States Marshals know that they have full okay, you, I recognize you want to give a separate speech. No, I don't want how to give How do you decide which statutes you enforce and which ones you don't? The Marshals on scene make that determination in light of the priority of defense. The Marshals do not make a determination over whether to prosecute you. The Attorney General make a determination, and you spent 20 years as a judge, and you're perfectly content with justices being afraid for their children's lives. And you did nothing to prosecute it. Let's shift that, to another that is, area. Can I answer the question? You, no, the, you the cannot. General, you have refused to answer the I question. I am answering your question. The how Attorney General choose, does not decide whether to how arrest. How did you choose not to, not to enforce this statute? The marshals on scene. Marshals don't make that decision. They do make the decision of whether to make to an prosecute arrest. prosecute someone? No, they don't. If they make a, uh, if they make Marshals do not if, have prosecution If they authority. make an arrest, right, then it goes to the marshals. Let's change topics because our, our time is limited. Senator Ted Cruz, Republican from Texas, questioning Attorney General Merrick Garland at today's Judiciary Committee hearing. The hearing ran about three and a half hours, covered many topics from violent crime to drug trafficking, border security, immigration, the Hunter Biden investigation. We covered it all, and you can find the video at cspan.org. Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot lost her run for a second term on Tuesday. She's the first elected Chicago mayor to lose a re-election bid since 1983. After the first round of voting, Lori Lightfoot had 17 percent of the vote behind the two frontrunners. Former Chicago Public Schools CEO Paul Vallis with 34 percent and Brandon Johnson, Cook County Commissioner, with 20 percent. Those two will move on to a runoff election on April 4th. Mayor Lightfoot spoke to her supporters Tuesday night. Obviously, we didn't win the election today, but I stand here with my head held high and a heart full of gratitude. I am grateful to the millions of Chicagoans who came together as we made tough decisions, saw the struggles of our frontline workers, and beat back a deadly pandemic. I'm grateful that we worked together to remove a record number of guns off our streets, reduced homicides, and started making real progress on public safety. I'm grateful that we were able to connect youth to uh, mental health services, housing, education, job training, and legal services. I'm extraordinarily proud that we made investments in communities that have been neglected for decades with Invest Southwest. And putting over $2.2 billion into communities um, in our neighborhoods, that commitment simply must continue. And I'm proud of the fact that we um, have de will deliver on the city's largest ever investments in affordable housing. Yes. And to achieve record investments in our public schools, adding school social workers, nurses, and special education case managers. Yes. And you better believe I am grateful that we took on the machine and entrenched forces that held this city back for far too long. Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot Tuesday night conceding the election. She is a Democrat and she came in third in the first round of voting. Two other Democrats got more of the vote than her, but not an absolute majority. They'll be heading to a runoff. That audio 
from ABC7 in Chicago. A Newsweek article has this, that Mayor Lightfoot made history as the first black woman and first openly gay person to lead the city in 2019, but she saw her popularity plummet amid a spike in crime in Chicago during the COVID-19 pandemic. New York Post article also includes this line, I'm a black woman in America, of course, she replied when asked by a reporter if she had been treated unfairly. This is Washington Today. National Park Service giving its prediction today for when the cherry blossoms surrounding the Tidal Basin in Washington, D.C. will be in peak bloom, an occasion that draws many visitors, both from the metro D.C. area and out-of-town tourists. Jeffrey Reinbold is superintendent of the National Mall and Memorial Parks. And now, the moment that we've been waiting for, I will say, emerging from the third warmest winter on record, this has been a particularly challenging year to read the trees and to project peak bloom. Due to the warmer than average temperatures, the trees never reached their winter dormancy, which is the starting point for calculating when the blooms will emerge. Our natural resource manager likened the trees this year, our indicator tree, to a teenager. There's a lot going on there right now. (laughs) The indicator tree is showing us several different phases of blossoms, uh, a result of the wide variations in temperatures and the weather that we've seen from last week's 80 degrees to snow within 24 hours, and particularly cool nights that are offsetting the warm days that we're seeing. All of them have effects on uh, when the trees will bloom. So nonetheless, after analyzing a variety of data, including winter temperatures and the March projections, as well as what the trees are telling us, our staff has come up with a projected bloom date when 70% of the Yoshino cherry trees will be in bloom. And because it is our tradition that Diana never lets me just open an envelope and read the dates, (laughs) please join me in welcoming the Dance for Life dancers to help me announce the date. And the projected dates are March 22nd through the 25th. Jeffrey Reinbold, superintendent of the National Mall and Memorial Parks at a news conference today in Washington, D.C., along with the the mayor and officials from the Cherry Blossom Festival. That audio from DCN. Cherry blossom tradition in Washington dates from 1912, when 3,000 cherry blossom trees were presented to the U.S. by Japan as a token of friendship. First trees planted by then First Lady Helen Taft. Thanks for listening to Washington Today. Sign up for C-SPAN's evening newsletter, Word for Word, to get the stories Washington is talking about sent to your inbox every day. Subscribe at c-span.org forward slash connect. Have a good night.